Hello and welcome to Room 5 from the Reading Room from Siren FM 107.3. This morning we've got poetry from Catherine Sankey, an interview and short story from Richard Barter from the Lincoln Phoenix Writers' Circle. And also the Reading Room book group will be discussing Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. We also have a short interview with Paul Heaton and the final part from romantic fiction author Sue Moorcroft. But I don't sell the ship alone. I'm joined by my colleagues Johnny and Stephen and here's Johnny to tell you about the podcast. Yeah, we have a brand new website, which is readingroom.podbean.com. This is uh, our new online home. On there, you'll find all of our past podcasts, as well as uh, some extra material that we don't have time for on the show, including an an extended version of that Paul Heaton interview. We're also going to be putting our track lists on there, photos, all sorts of stuff. So that's readingroom.podbean.com, and you can subscribe on there to our iTunes feed if you've not already. And of course, don't forget, you can listen live to us online from anywhere in the world. That's at sirenonline.co.uk. And um, I'd also like to say uh, good morning to Whitney, who um, listens from America. We had a, we had a piece of fan mail this week, and uh, it came across from uh, just next to oh, in Minnesota. What was that film? Fargo. She lives near Fargo. Absolutely fantastic. Good morning to you. And now we'll hand over to Stephen Lawrence, who's going to tell us all about the first feature on this month's podcast. The US TV series The Wire is perhaps one of the most acclaimed drama series of recent years, having been praised by everyone from Charlie Brooker to Nick Hornby. But what many viewers don't realise is that the series owes its existence to two recently republished books. Our producer, Johnny Hoare, has been looking at the books that inspired a TV classic. We're building something here, Detective. We're building it from scratch. All the pieces matter. Give you a walk through the garden. It's been described as the greatest TV series ever made. Those of us who have watched it spend most of our time telling those who haven't that they really ought to watch it. The Wire, which tells the story of the city of Baltimore and the American dream gone bad, is perhaps the closest TV has got to equaling a great novel in its ambition and scope. But the series has its roots in two non-fiction books, the first written over two decades ago. Back in 1987, the industries on which the once thriving city of Baltimore was built are in terminal decline. The unemployment rate is in double figures, and, in the absence of any other life choices, an epidemic of heroin and crack cocaine addiction has taken hold of the working classes. And underfunded police departments are facing two murders every three days, most of them drugs related. What you know about Baltimore? What you know about Baltimore? Baltimore. Against this backdrop, a young newspaper reporter by the name of David Simon managed to negotiate unprecedented access to the city's beleaguered homicide unit. His book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, intimately details the ups and downs of the department as detectives fight an unwinnable war against the rising tide of crime and against their own superiors' obsessions with statistics and media grandstanding. Researching a book like this, a writer might be expected to clock up maybe a couple of hundred hours shadowing their subjects, but Simon did something different. He spent the entire year embedded with the department, six days a week, often 20 hours a day, working, socialising and, more often than not, getting drunk with the hard-living detectives. Through David's sheer persistence, his initially reticent subjects eventually accepted the long-haired journalist as one of their own, allowing him to visit live crime scenes, witness autopsies and even sit in on interrogations. Many of his experiences would later make their way into scripts for The Wire. We've been in here a whole two hours telling you what's true in the world and you're going to sit there like nothing happened. My lawyer. We called him. When he gets here, we'll let you know. I got nothing to say. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the man, but I ain't got nothing to say. You sorry? You sorry for him? You f- killed the man. Simon's extensive research was moulded into a remarkable book, 
which frequently reads like a crime thriller, only one free of the usual clichés and nice neat endings. Indeed, many of the featured cases are left unsolved and loose ends remain. This uncompromising approach to telling it how it is was later to distinguish The Wire from other cop shows. We're good at this, Lester. In this town, we're as good as it gets. Natural police. Yes, natural police. The book was published in 1988 to widespread apathy. It wasn't until the Baltimore-based film director Barry Levinson snapped up the rights and turned it into a hit TV series for NBC that the book began to garner some attention, eventually selling over a quarter of a million copies. Then, in 1993, Simon teamed up with ex-Baltimore detective and future co-producer of The Wire, Ed Burns, to pen what was essentially a sequel to Homicide. The Corner tells the story of the city from the other side of the fence, down on the drug-ridden streets of West Baltimore, with the dealers, dope fiends, and the few remaining tax-paying citizens, too poor or too proud to leave. Here, drugs gangs have colonised the street corners, and the police have all but given up the fight. The book centres on the McCulloch family. Gary, a once successful property developer, is now reduced to feeding his addiction by stealing copper pipes from the very houses he once renovated. His ex-wife Fran, also an addict, is trying to set her life straight against all odds, while their teenage son DeAndre, while occasionally attending school, is gradually being lured away by the easy money and perceived glamour of drug dealing. The book follows their highs and their lows, and details their sometimes heartbreaking attempts to escape a life they are all too aware is slowly killing them. It can't have been easy for two decidedly white writers to blend in on the predominantly black streets of West Baltimore. Indeed, many of their subjects initially suspected Simon and Burns to be undercover cops. But the authors repeated Simon's technique of sheer bloody-minded persistence, spending three years on the streets researching the book. Eventually, they were fully accepted on the corners, becoming part of the furniture, and were able to witness life as it's really lived on these tough streets. Streets which most of suburban America would rather turn a blind eye to. This America, man. In 2001, The Corner was adapted as an Emmy award-winning miniseries for HBO, featuring many actors who would later turn up in The Wire. But it wasn't until the following year when Simon and Burns combined their experiences writing both Homicide and The Corner that The Wire was born. The writers plundered their books extensively for the series, borrowing names, anecdotes, and even entire sections of dialogue from their real-life experiences, weaving them into the fictional fabric of The Wire. Combining the two books was a masterstroke, allowing the series to tell the story of Baltimore from the perspective of both the police and the people on the streets. Having formed friendships with detectives and drug dealers alike, Simon and Burns were in a unique position to portray people on both sides as human, and, in their different ways, all victims of Baltimore's decline. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun, got the briefcase. It's on the game though, right? The books, like the TV series, are an immersive experience. At first you're confused by the colloquialisms, all this talk of corners and stoops, stash houses and re-ups. But if you persist, you soon find you understand it like a true Baltimorean. Both books clearly come from an angry place. The author's sense of moral outrage that, in the wealthiest country in the world, many of their fellow citizens have been left behind. It's an outrage you can't help but share by the end of the books, along perhaps with a sneaking worry that the same could happen here in the UK. Yet there's also humour and hope. The residents of Baltimore seem uncommonly proud of their city for all its faults. How would anybody ever want to leave Baltimore? That's what I'm asking. Both Homicide and The Corner have recently been updated and republished, and I'd heartily recommend them. If you've not yet watched The Wire, these books will undoubtedly whet your appetite. 
and if you have watched The Wire, they can only reconfirm your respect for this landmark series. All in the game, yo. All in the game. <laughs> You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, and now it's time to hear from a local writer, Richard Barter. He's a member of the Lincoln Phoenix Writers Circle, uh, who we've featured previously here on The Reading Room, for a couple in fact. And uh, I started by asking Richard if he ever has any reservations about presenting his work to the Writers Circle. I did to start with. I thought there were some you know, quite competent people there, good writers, and I was nervous of presenting my stuff but uh, I found they were very responsive very kind but also very constructive it's no good being kind if you're not constructive exactly I mean that, that's the important thing you, you you go there to get something out of it and to get some feedback and to grow and, and, and get better that's right and they they do make some good suggestions I have found in in other groups if they just say oh that's good you think well, how good and what can be better? But at the Phoenix, they, they do pick up on things and they've certainly changed a lot of what I've done. I've gone through old stories and hacked them to pieces because of what I've picked up at the Phoenix. And how, how, do, you find, how do you find that editorial process? Is that something you... Painful. Yeah. Things I love. I've, I've had phrases that I've lovingly crafted and put in and when I've chopped them, I've just thought, I don't want to do this, but you have to. Yeah, that that seems like the the, the hard work. I think I've, I've read something recently by a writer that said that's really the whether the hard work. And like you say, you don't you know it's almost like turning up for work doing that kind of thing. Rather than it's it is still creative, but it's not as creative as the first initial. You know, I always like the creative bit. When I was a teacher, I always liked preparing lessons and delivering them. Markings, hell, I hate it, yeah. but making something and planning something and it's the same with stories I, I get an idea and I run with it and I I sit down and I'm so keen and I really enjoy it afterwards when you have to edit cut things back take out those you know too many adjectives that you've put in that that, that is harder but it but there is a satisfaction to it yeah and ending up with a, a quality finished product well I hope so when you get an idea, are you the kind of person that keeps a pen and paper by the bed, or is it? Can you can you stick with it, or or do you think maybe you know if it, if you can't remember it, then it wasn't worth? I go out for a walk in the morning. I think of a story, and I have to get home and go and write it out straight away, or the notes down straight away, because an hour later I've forgotten half of it. But if I do write it down, if it's rubbish, then I can change and improve it. Or think, no, it's not such a good idea after all. But I think you always kid yourself that it is a good idea. It's not till later you realise it's not good. Yeah. If you think of something, because it's yours, you, you, you take it as good. It's like your children. <laughs> yeah. You always think they're good. <laughs> yeah. You need somebody else to point out their faults. Do you know what? I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> is it short stories that, that, that you mainly write? Do you have um, any novels? I've got two or three on the go which are short stories that have got longer and longer. So I suppose you would put them into the realm of novellas, but I'm not sure how they're going to work out. I, I think that they are more catharsis for me. I, I have ideas and I want to get them out and I go on and on and I go back and read them mm. and they, they make me happy. But I don't think other people might be so interested. 
But the short stories are what I really like doing. I don't think I could sustain a novel. That is hard work, planning and plotting and, and thinking so many plot points ahead. I think that would be quite a challenge. I should write short essays, you know, four pages long, things like that. Uh, and I really enjoy it. And I think it's very, very important to write what you enjoy. It will show in your work. Oh, it does. Uh, th- the things I write are the things I want to write. And that is a fault in a way because I put in things I've read in the paper and annoy me. So I sound off about them. And I suddenly found that's a big hunk of the story and it's irrelevant. And they're the things that the Phoenix said. You know, what did you put that bit in the middle there for? <laughs> and I go away after and say, yeah, why did I? I was, I was just getting it off my chest. Now, what I'm always interested in, and I think I've asked this question to most people, most writers I've interviewed, is once you start writing and you look at the process of writing and you're a member of a writer's circle, does that affect the way you read either novels or, or, or anything? Are you always looking at people's style? No. You can you so you find you find it very easy just to get lost in a in a story. I, I get lost in a story. My, my favourites, I think Le Carre. I, I, I can go back to him over and over again. And there's a new one out which I'm looking forward to. I do like the old classics. I do listen to a lot of audio books. Some readers put them across so well. Uh, you know, sort of listening listening to a story. I find it you you're letting someone else do some work for you there. Uh, but you're still managing to make your own pictures, I think. But my mind, when I'm listening to a story, sometimes will go off at a tangent. The other evening, I was listening to Tristram Shandy. And I don't know how, but I suddenly switched off uh, mentally. The tape was still running, but I had an idea for a story. And I had to go upstairs and get it written quickly yeah. or get the, the bones of it down. How that happened, I don't know. I can't remember what triggered it off but it just did. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time to hear our short story for this morning. Uh, Dip that sugar in your tea and uh, settle down for this one. This is fantastic. This is by Richard Barter. Time has no meaning. Tommy eased from his deep, dreamless sleep. There was noise overhead. Were they moving in a new resident? He liked to think of someone coming to spend his final years in this quiet spot. Perhaps another old friend who could share their view across the little river to the dense woodland climbing the far slope. The wild aspect of the opposite bank contrasted with the silent neatness nearby. It was the best of both worlds. They enjoyed closely cropped grass, bulbs in the spring, miniature roses in the summer. Small evergreen shrubs always cheered the place up, even in winter. Their walled garden was immaculate, while over the water lay the tumbled abundance of nature, tall trees jostling each other above a green gloom of entwining undergrowth. If they had to put you in a place like this, Tommy told himself, there couldn't be anywhere better. It was peaceful, tucked out of the way, a little apart from the cottages in the village. The distant chuntering of farm vehicles, the far cries of men working their fields, even the occasional puttering of a passing car, all blended into a background tapestry of sound that only served to enhance the silence. At their chosen times, the birds flitted, the slight songs of warblers and finches slipping out from behind the leaves. The harsh call of a jay forced its raucous way onto the air. Even the random shots of a sportsman reverberating through the trees and sending up a cacophony of rooks could not break the spell. 
pals from early days, Tommy and Jack, were together till the end. They never said much, but somehow always understood the other's thoughts. Who is it, Tommy? Can you make out what they've put? No, I don't think he's one of our mob, though. Best not disturb him for a while. Give him time to settle in. Whoever the newcomer turned out to be meant little. More tolerant than in earlier days, they were content to take a broader view. They mixed with all sorts, different religions and skin colours, foreign tongues and strange lilts, had been welcomed from all corners of the world. Whoever he was, they knew they would accept a new friend. Pleasant as it was, there were few visitors. The passing years had stolen away, but Tommy believed it had been some time since the last ones came. Family members were always distressed. There was weeping and flowers. Words were said and messages left. Heaviest of all were the unspoken thoughts. And it all came from the heart, all genuine. Even the men took out their handkerchiefs to wipe away the all-too-obtrusive tear. It didn't upset Tommy, but he felt for those who went away forlorn. He hoped their visit, in spite of the stirring of emotions, went some way to soothing whatever ache was buried inside them. Tommy was not alone in wishing for more visitors. His comrades liked to be remembered. They hoped it wouldn't be too long before the next ones came. But as they told themselves, we can afford to wait. After all, we've got all the time in the world now. Time stood still, though the seasons passed. Tommy and Jack learnt about their new neighbour. Where are you from, chum? An accent from the far south answered. They fetched me over from Jeancourt Way. Quite a nice spot there, but I was in the way. Poor bloke couldn't get on with his ploughing, me lying there. You'll like it here. If we can't go home, this is not a bad place to finish up. Very peaceful. How long have you been here? Seems like forever, but we don't count the days. There were unmistakable signs of footsteps. Not so much herd falling on the grass, but rather soft waves trembling through the earth. A group, children mostly, wandered about, pausing near one man, then examining another. Unusually for teenagers, they were hushed, exchanging quiet comments with one another, or trying to hide embarrassing emotion behind a snatched smile. They silently pondered the stark details, or paused at the strange lettering of Sikh or Muslim. Minds followed a familiar pattern. Puzzled sadness at those known only to God, wondering who it was that so long ago had answered to a particular name, thoughtful over the ages now fixed forever. Predictably, they pointed out Jerry alone in his corner. He generally kept himself to himself, though language was no longer a barrier where he had come to rest. He chuckled over the surprise that his strange lone presence here always created. Tommy couldn't understand the restrained behaviour of these children. Surely he had been far more boisterous at their age. As they went away through the iron gate and up the narrow grassy path, he was relieved to hear their voices growing louder, as if a valve had released their pent-up energy. That's what he liked to hear. That's what it had been about those countless years earlier. He reasoned it out. Isn't that what me and Jack and the others, even Jerry, had aimed for, so that life could go on? so that kids could laugh and shout. Visiting is fine, but youngsters have their own life to lead. They ought to come and see and understand what it all meant, then go away, not stay to keep us company. There's enough of us here as it is. He sensed Jack. What were they saying, Tommy? Did I miss much? Only the usual, Jack. She said how young you were, 
the same age as her brother is. Yeah, I was young. I am still, and always will be now. Another resident joined in. Remember that old bloke that stood by me last week? Or it might have been last year. Anyway, didn't know who he was. But he got very emotional, left a wreath and everything. It's taken me all this while to read it. It says, Sorry it's been so long, Dad, but I'm here at last. Your loving son. Would you believe it? I never knew you had a son. Neither did I. Wonder why she didn't tell me. Ah, well, I know now. Perhaps she did. You remember what the post was like, always being held up. So life has gone on. I've got a little wooden cross with a poppy. Some kid placed it here. It says, I don't know who you are, but I am thinking of you. See, no one knows my name or where they put me. But we do, Tommy. You're in good company here. We're in that corner that is forever England. Tommy was not discontented. He settled himself. You're right, Jack. Let's sleep now. Listening to the reading room on Siren 107.3 FM. Madonna, of course, Madonna, and uh, Into the Groove. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine, and that's uh, after the news at 11 o'clock. We like to have this little slot. It's an unofficial part of the programme now that we call If I'm up, we're all up, and, uh, and that's it. But it's quite appropriate. We were just discussing music uh, while you were listening to Madonna there, and we were talking about the 80s. And uh, the book this morning was set in the 80s, the book we're reviewing on the Reading Room book group. And uh, it's probably best to introduce you to our guest this morning. Uh, they're both first-timers here for the Reading Room. Uh, we have uh, Hilary Savory and uh, also Stephen Lawrence, who is a new member to the Reading Room team. Now then, um, if we look at the cover of the book, this is by David Mitchell, Black Swan Green. Now, it's worth noting uh, that this is not the TV personality David Mitchell which is when I first went through the reading list uh, which is provided by Lincolnshire Libraries uh, I looked at that and I thought I was trying to pick a bit of variety for the list you know but as, as we've experienced over the last few months and I was looking at I thought oh yeah well I quite like him he's been on panel shows and peep show and uh, that Mitchell and Webb look I love that he's written a book great not him. Uh, <laughs> now, this is the order, author of the award-winning, uh, multi-award winning, actually, uh, Cloud Atlas, which uh, I'm going to look up certainly after reading this. But just looking at the cover, and we've talked covers recently on the reading room, and it's kind of a, I like the blue on the cover. Other than that, I don't like anything else about the cover. Uh, what, what about you two? I, I honestly hadn't really thought about the cover. It hadn't really, it really struck me. I think um, perhaps having read the book, it, it's sort of um, indicating sort of the rurality of where Jason lives because he's always complaining about you know he lives in the back of beyond yeah. isn't he and about he he doesn't you know it's, it's it lives in the countryside so yeah. maybe it's I suppose that's right but isn't that that wouldn't grab me to get it off the shelf it wouldn't no. it, would. <laughs> it wouldn't now let's give you a bit of background on uh, Black Swan Green uh, which is January 1982 13 year old Jason Taylor uh, covert stammerer and reluctant poet anticipates a stullifying year in his backwater English village uh, but he hasn't reckoned with bullies a simmering family discord the Falklands Wars a threatened gypsy invasion and those mysterious entities known as girls charting 13 months in the black hole between childhood and ad- adolescence this is a captivating novel 
wry, painful, vibrant and the stuff of life. Uh, according to the back of it, The Guardian describe it as rich and strange and The Daily Mail, God bless them, describe it as gorgeous, uh, which I certainly believe it is. Now, Hilary, what did you think of this one? I thoroughly enjoyed reading it um, and I think, uh, I think you mentioned David Mitchell's previous book, Cloud Atlas, and it certainly struck me when I was reading it how different it was to Cloud Atlas. And having had a look through some of the reviews on it, that's certainly something that comes through in the reviews, that how different it is sort of formally uh, and um, it has a much more traditional plot line, very chronological order, order and a single first-person narrator. But I think a lot of the reviews compared it fairly unfavourably to Cloud Atlas, but I don't think they were really looking closely enough at it because I, I suspect that there's a lot more in there that D- Mitchell's deliberately put in yeah. to compare it to his previous works. I think one of the interesting comments I came across was that it feels like a first novel rather than a fourth novel because it's so stylistically different. But then, as I say, I think if you read more closely... There is a lot more in there that's worth discussing. Earlier on, we were talking about um, the curious dog, uh, curious incident. Mm. Oh, please tell me that title. Curious I was getting it wrong. Curious incident of the dog in the night. Time. That was it. That was Nick it. Haddon, I think. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's certainly got that that sort of uh, similar narrative to it, hasn't mm. it? Hasn't mm. it? Uh, Stephen, your thoughts on this? Um. I haven't finished it yet. Okay, well that's okay. that's uh, that's okay. But, you know, yeah. you get to see me in a little uh, crossing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I've read so far, I thought it was a very funny book, but like very very poignant as well. And I felt that it sort of provided the quintessential teenage angst that everyone goes through. Yeah. Everyone goes through, but not just in teenage years either, but in life. And that sort of growing up and coming-of-age story. But, um, yeah, I thought that it presented the games and the cruelties of adolescence brilliantly. Mm. I was really pleased, actually, how much I could relate to the book and how I could sort of see his viewpoint as my own viewpoint. And I don't find that there's many books that you can do that with with a character. Mm. So it was very nice to find that. Yeah, yes, yeah, very true. Very early on, he talks about the the groups that you're in, yeah. uh, you know, as to whether you're, uh, you know, hanging around with the hard kids and things like that. And it's very easily categorized and very easily recognized um, and, and puts it across in a way that I certainly could never do. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he, he refers to himself as a middle ranking kid, doesn't yeah. he? And certainly the theme of, of bullying throughout the book struck chords with me. I know if, if I don't know if anybody's ever been bullied at school, but it's it's cruel and it's horrible. Yeah. And a lot of Jason life is spent trying to avoid it isn't it and he he changes his personality the the different groups and people that he speaks to um he changes his personality and of course because he suffers from this terrible stammer um he he actually can't communicate a lot of the time yeah yeah and he he, uh he almost successfully guises it for uh, what seemingly the first part of the book but uh, i think people are picking up on it another thing with the book is the historical references all the way through it um they're certainly uh, set against the backdrop of the falklands war and uh earlier on today i recorded uh, an excerpt uh, from it and uh, i think this would give uh, the listeners a, a good insight as to the, uh, the 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 kind of backdrop it's set against The whole of Great Britain's like its bonfire night and Christmas Day and St George's Day and the Queen's Silver Jubilee all rolled into one. Mrs Thatcher appeared outside number 10 Downing Street saying, Rejoice! Just rejoice! The photographers flashed bulbs and the crowds went crazy. She wasn't a politician at all, but all four members of Book's Fizz at the Eurovision Song Contest. 
everyone sang Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, Britain never, never shall be slaves, over and over. Has that song got any verses, or is it just one never-ending chorus? This summer isn't green. This summer is red, white and blue of the Union Jack. Bells have rung, beacons lit, street parties have broken out up and down the country. Isaac Pye had an all-night happy hour at the Black Swan last night. In Argentina, riots are being reported in the major cities, with lootings and shootings and some people saying it's just a matter of time before junta's toppled. The Daily Mail's full of how great British guts and great British leadership won the war. No Prime Minister's ever been more popular than Premier Margaret Thatcher in the entire history of opinion polls. I should be really happy. Julia reads The Guardian, which has got all sorts of stuff not in the Daily Mail. Most of the 30,000 enemy soldiers, she says, were just conscripts and Indians. Their elite troops all raced back to Port Stanley as the British paratroopers advanced. Some of the ones they left behind got killed by bayonets. Having your intestines pulled out through a slit in the belly. What a 1914 way to die in 1982. Absolutely, I think that illustrates very well his, um, his changing mind because at the beginning he, he quite liked the idea of going to war. It's quite exciting, you know, and it's on TV and in the press and uh, to a young boy who plays war, war games and things like that. And then uh, that, I suppose that's his change into adolescence where he starts thinking about things and uh, he's got a sister who's conscious of the, you know, the, the problems of going to war and the, you know, the fatalities and things like that. Johnny, uh, can we bring you in? Because you wanted to talk about the, uh, the nostalgia uh, side of the book, didn't you? Yeah, it was one of the things that really pulled me in from the start, you know, these constant references to 80s bands and children's slang and stuff. I mean, I, I was a bit younger than Jason is in the book. I was about seven, eight years old at this period. But it was certainly this, this kind of, I love 1983 nostalgia really pulled me in. The only thing that slightly distracted me a bit was that there were a couple of slight errors. I think this probably says more about my geekiness than anything else. But for example, at one point he talks about um, his mother in, in early 1982 watching Breakfast TV. Breakfast TV didn't start till 1983. All right, all right. (laughs) All you had to do was Google it. um, (laughs) So I found that vaguely distracting, but that that probably says more about me than anything else. No, I think, you know, you need to be precise, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it, if we're going to give this book a round criticism, I think we all loved it, didn't we? If we're going to give it a round, you know, round uh, unbiased criticism, then we have to bring out these tiny little (laughs) (laughs) flaws. I did wonder how um, Stephen, who's sickeningly young, um, felt about all this nostalgia, because obviously it's way, way before your time, didn't you? Obviously, I don't know what it was like during 1982, but what I felt that from a person that wasn't brought up in 1980s Britain, but I felt that it brilliantly evoked Thatcher's Britain and 1980s Britain, especially the Falklands War, affected so many characters from his dad to Tom in the book as well, and how they were affected by what Thatcher employed. In, in Britain and stuff like that and yeah and how it altered the lives and I thought it was very interesting and I felt that I was sort of obliged to go research some more about it as well which I found great. I see. Well I see. I'm going to give away my age now because I was Julia's age in 1982. I see. Uh, I suspect Julia was probably a bit more politically aware than I was in 1982. I, I mean we've been talking about music I think I spent most of 1982 going to nightclubs and discos but I certainly do obviously recall the Falklands and the impact that had. Um, I mean, he reproduces in the book, he has some graphics inserted within the text, and he reproduces that Sun headline, Gotcha. Yeah. And they, you know, they sank, they sank the General Belgrano. And that was huge, uh, huge. And, and, and I think I seem to recall reading somewhere that with the Falklands was one of the first conflicts where you were having news coming through in real time. Yeah. So people were seeing these dreadful things happening in somewhere where nobody had ever heard of. 
and say I do certainly remember the impact that ha- that had. And and Jason's absolutely right about Mrs. Thatcher. He says I think he says Mrs. Thatcher, she's ace. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's yeah, very yeah. Politically naive, isn't he? That yeah, he, yeah, he he just sees all the the real sort of the jingoism and the patriotism, but doesn't see like Julia sees really what's happening to the soldiers. Uh, now we were talking about the stammer, Hillary. Uh, David Mitchell himself actually had a stammer. I believe he did. Yes, yes, and was um, born and brought, or not born, but brought up in in Worcestershire, uh, and he would have been 13 in 1982 so I suspect the book has been called semi-autobiographical so I think he's probably um, pulling on a lot of his experience of of his his own school days. Yeah yeah, and it it certainly highlights the difference between a a stutter Mm. and a stammer. Can you remember what that is? Uh, A stutter is where you get stuck stuck on a word whereas a stammer you get stuck stuck yeah. can't bring the word out so yeah. uh, I thought that was quite interesting I did learn something there yeah, and as well as the, the main character Jason I think you've picked up on this Stephen there are other characters that go along in with, that yes. come along with Jason weren't there there yes. are um, what, sort of his own versions of himself so yeah. there was Maggot the unborn twin and the hangman and the Maggot was a purveyor of spite and greed mm. And the unborn twin was much bigger and braver and more able to do things and would sort of force him to do other things. And the hangman would be his block with his stammer. And I found that it was quite an intriguing way into the psychology of someone's consciousness and someone's conscience at that as well. And it was very interesting. I thought giving his stammer a name and calling it hangman was really clever and yeah. it was was one of his ways of dealing with it because he can tell hangman to go away and and it's hangman that's doing it not jason so that i thought that was really interesting yeah yeah i think the interesting bit that got me was when he went for uh, speech therapy mm. and he was saying that you know the rules that hangman in place saying you must never tell your speech therapist about hangman you know you just you, i was almost screaming saying you know just tell her tell her that she can help you she can help you but i think he says something hangman hides yeah. when i'm talking to is it Mrs. DeRoos is the, yeah. the speech therapist? The speech therapist, mm. right, okay. Now, uh, we'll have a quick look at some emails that have, uh, that have come in. We've got our other regular contributors to the programme. And uh, this one is from our friend Mel. Uh, yes, I can honestly say I enjoyed it. Now, whether I was because I resonated with Jason, the main character, I'm not sure. I'm a child of the 1980s and just a little younger than Jason, so I very much recognised the setting and the feelings of being that age at the time. So, to a degree, it was very easy to read for this reason. But to add to that, I was a secret poetry writer and still have the notebooks to prove it and was one of the outcasts at school uh, and then it really did make for a good resonant read. Honestly, there were times when I wondered if David Mitchell had channeled my experiences, but then I realised in many ways we all experience things much in the same way at 13, depending on the group you fit in, and that's what we were talking about earlier, into the group you slot into. Um, something else he conveys very well uh, throughout the subject of his writing, I think. And uh, Cathy from Lincoln has also uh, emailed this month, and uh, I found this novel uh, lays bare the trauma of an adolescent boy who was defined by the fact he had a stutter, which is a stammer, uh, uncomfortable, poetic, and sometimes very funny. It shows how lonely his life is uh, as he travels through a daily barrage of bullying and the misery of the breakup of his parents' marriage. 
Though at times the constant barrage of bullying was painful, the book came through with some very funny prose and sometimes I found the writing sheer genius. And also our friend Jill from Waterstones in Lincoln. Uh, I've become a big David Mitchell fan since reading The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoe and Cloud Atlas earlier this year. His characters and places are vividly real, whether they are in the historical past or in the imaginably distant future of humankind in a way that makes us see them with the astonishment of an alien visiting this amazing and peculiar planet we live on. Black Swan Green is both very different in it's a deceptively simple rites of passage story with a 12-year-old boy growing into, uh, up in a small town in the UK in the 80s and exactly the same as it's an insight into an alien world and what can be a more alien experience than becoming a teenager. Jason turns from a very childlike 12 with a debilitating stammer, deep in the sheer awfulness of the impotency of being a child, to a young adult of 13 who's grown up confidence in his own identity, his love of words, uh, how to walk in someone else's shoes and to take action. He learns important lessons. Thank you very much for your contributions this month. Also, another subtext to the story is the breakup of his parents, isn't it, which uh, really, you know, really affects him uh, quite deeply. And again, you can see that quite from the start with things laid on sofas and phone calls, and it's, it's woven into the background almost very well isn't it mm. I think that that's what makes it so poignant is that the, as the reader knows that his parents are obviously going through difficulties and I think Jason it doesn't really click does it with him until quite a lot later on in the novel he knows that they're arguing and that things aren't quite right but right from the very opening pages where the phone is ringing in his father's study and he picks it up and there's just silence. You know, the reader is alerted to the fact that something's not quite right. So you'd both recommend this book? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I think our email viewers, I would I would definitely recommend it. And it, I, It's now got me into looking at other David Mitchell novels and I'm certainly going to pick up, uh, pick up Cloud Atlas. And it's funny because this month I've also been reading, um, oh, what's that book? What was that book? Uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. That was oh, it, Girl yeah. with a Dragon Tattoo. I've not been reading that. I've been listening to it. Five hours I've put in so far and nothing, I repeat, nothing has happened. <laughs> it's, it's very, I'm, I'm quite enjoying it because it's quite a precise book and quite good in detail, but... Unlike, ab- absolutely opposed to this book. It was, this book was a book about feelings and, uh, you know, really, really an enjoyable read. Thank you both for coming in and sparing the time for us this morning. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. An educating reader. How should I live? What path can I trust? All appear shallow and full of dust. To walk an intellect, shall I lose life's sense? To fall to the mundane... Do I become entrenched? Each guiding line leads nowhere. Life deals evenly with foul and fair. Panoramic visions, narrow views. Which sight to see with do I use? What do I gain? What do I lose? Oh, thanks to Catherine Sankey there. Uh, we recorded, Catherine, we also recorded an interview that is going to feature on a, a special documentary we're currently working on, uh, which is really to do with my personal relationship of, uh, of, of poetry. And that is, it's, a, it's kind of a bit like fruit, you know. I, I kind of want to like it, but find it hard to appreciate. Um, and uh, recently, I went over to uh, to Louth, to the Wald's Words Festival, and uh, Andrew Motion there, Sir Andrew Motion, uh, was there, the Poet Laureate. And... Um, I don't know, due, due to one thing and another, I didn't actually get the interview that I was going to get with Andrew, uh, which, which might chart my opinion of the man <laughs> somewhat. Um, but he, he gave a very, very good uh, lecture on Philip Larkin. Uh, but then I found him, uh, he did a Q&A session at the end, and I found him really quite stuffy. Um, but that was, that was after the time I'd been told that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't speak to him. Um, so, you know, you know my, I, I consider myself and my view, views and judgments there. <laughs> 
Um, but also, very recently, I interviewed uh, Paul Heaton for Siren FM, where we went to talk about his, his new album and the tour. And you can find that on our podcast page as well. You go through uh, the usual channels, www.sirenonline.co.uk. Find our podcast, and you'll also find uh, the interview with Paul Heaton, formerly of the Beautiful South, of course. And uh, we talked about poetry then. And we also talked about the process of writing his new album. And uh, he went abroad for it, as usual. I went to Maastricht and wrote there, wrote the lyrics in a couple of weeks, I think it was. And then for the music went to uh, Tenerife. And that's when you joined a guitar player there and sort yeah. of caught, caught with the melodies. Yeah. So actually in, in the writing of it, I mean, did, are they written perhaps as poems? I've seen on your Facebook thing, on the notes thing, I mean, there are certain poems down there, aren't they? Are they written yeah. as poems and then, but do you have a melody to mind when well, you do Well, a bit of both. I, I sometimes have a melody and I usually keep that melody and so the song structure is there already. Um, I, I always think pop music ruins a good poet, a poem. You know, it always. I think it always. Most of my stuff looks better written down than it does sung. I think singing it gives. Um, it makes it a bit throwaway uh, sometimes. But yeah, I don't. I, I try and be poetic, but I rarely do I write poems. More recently, I've been writing poems. It's hard work for me though. Yeah, because we're doing a separate documentary uh, about poetry, just uh-huh. because actually the, the written form, like Simon Armitage uh, did a book called Gig, great book I thought, mm-hmm. and I wrote, I, I read all the prose bit, and I just kind of skipped past the poetry just because it doesn't particularly speak to me. But poetry is part of my everyday life, from nursery rhymes for the kids to adverts mm-hmm. to you know song lyrics and things yeah. like that. But actually, if you put a poem in front of me, I'm really going to struggle, and I find yeah. that you know it's quite a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah, um, I suppose it's like yeah. It's a bit sort of like Shakespearean, isn't it? Some of the way people write poems as well. A lot of people write it in quite an old, old language, yeah. uh, and a language that is personal to themselves. But I suppose that's the that's the sort of um, the success or the failure of poet, poetry is it how easy it is to be understood without being too understanding. If so, I mean, you've got to give you you've got to give some complication to it complexion as well yeah yeah we interviewed a poet recently and he was saying well that's kind of the idea of poetry because i was talking about making it perhaps more accessible for people to get on board and he was saying well no it shouldn't be it should you should put the time into it and then you get more out of it yeah well i suppose it's that's a bit like art you know i mean uh, you know like i'm talking about as in paintings a lot of people say um well you know like yeah look at it a fifth or sixth time and you'll see what i see sort yeah. of thing Oh, I don't get that. I'm, I'm, I'm like yourself. I want it immediate. Uh, Paul Heaton. And uh, that was a great interview. Very, very nice chap. And uh, we should also point out that Sir Andrew Motion was the former Poet Laureate. He's currently, uh, currently uh, Caroline Duffy is the, uh, the, the Poet Laureate, I should say. Now, um, it's time for the final part of our interview with the author, Sue Moorcroft. Uh, in previous editions of The Reading Room, uh, we've discussed in detail uh, the process of plotting and characterisation. And this month, we start talking about ideas. I think an idea is something you ought to be able to express in a sentence and when I'm writing a synopsis for a publisher I tend to make the idea the first line of the synopsis and so for all that malarkey I probably said in the synopsis something like all that malarkey is a novel about revenge and love and that's the idea. The synopsis is something I write for a publisher which is much broader it does give you the whole of the book but it's in broad brushstrokes 
and I might say um, it's about revenge and love. When Cle- when Gav does, says this to Cleo, this happens, and because that this happens, it's very broad brushstrokes, and you will speak a, a lot about emotion and about characteristics. And most people want everything in a synopsis; they want the ending as well. But occasionally, you'll get a publisher who will say, "Don't tell me the ending in the synopsis," and they will talk. If they're interested enough in the rest, they will ask you for the ending then to see. Is it good enough? Because endings are very important. And an outline is another thing again. And really that has all the twists and turns. It's a bit like having a map of your whole book and all the blind alleys you go up to. It gives you the whole route from A to B or A to Z, I suppose. Um, And it's something that a writer uses more for their own purposes. Looking at ideas, where, where do you get your ideas or how do you know it's the right idea? The right idea has got to have legs There's got to be enough in it, enough mileage in it for a whole novel. If it's for a novel, obviously I get ideas for short stories and things as well, which is a much more particular, and it tends to be a single conflict, a single episode, whereas a novel is a completely different thing. It's got the overarching storyline, to use the chew-to-speak for it. In other words, it's got this central theme, but it hasn't... um, It's got to have lots of subplots and interest for everybody there and... The whole thing moves forward and it's you know got to keep your attention for 300 pages or whatever. And it's got to be right for the market. I write love scenes in my books. If I put enough heat in them so that Lynn says that's too much, I've got it just right for that market. Yeah. If I sent that to a different publisher, they would say it's not enough. Um, you've got to make not not just the heat content, anything. It's no good me sending war and peace to the people's friend because they don't publish that. Yeah. It could be brilliant, but they don't publish that. So there's no point. Sometimes you get the wrong idea that's for you. I had an idea listening to somebody else's anecdote that a lady in her 40s could fall for a surprise baby. And at the same time, she'd find out that her son had fathered a surprise baby. So these babies would be the same age. And yeah. I, I heard about this happening to somebody and I thought, oh, brilliant idea. And I did pitch it to my agent and she was interested. And then I thought, do I want to spend a year with two babies? No, I don't. And so I've never written that book, although I think it's it's got legs. Yeah. And I've never written it because I've never felt as though I want to spend that year with, with two babies. Where the ideas materialise from often do come from conversations. I like talking to people. And as a general rule, if somebody finds something remarkable, it probably is. And that's worked a lot for short stories. People have told me anecdotes and sometimes I've stuck two together, you know, because you've got to have that structure, you've got to have the resolution. And sometimes an anecdote alone doesn't have that punchline that, mm. you, that you need. But uh, yes, ideas do come from that. And all that malarkey, uh, for instance, has jet skiers in it. Just because I stopped at a lake, it was a sunny day and I was driving somewhere, had plenty of time in hand and watched these people jet skiing. And they sort of began to inhabit my mind. They were having fun at a lake where they weren't supposed to be jet skiing, but they didn't let that worry them. And Hmm. you could see there was a little bit of infighting going in among the group. And you could see not everybody had their own jet ski. People owned a bit of a jet ski. They'd gone in together to buy it. And there was some politics about that. And this kind of thing, it, it just goes into my mind and becomes a daydream. And I just find myself driving along the road or walking along or cooking the dinner, something which doesn't occupy that writing part of my mind per se. And I'll just find that I'm solving these issues and giving people more issues. Uh, So again, looking at plotting, uh, what's, what's the most difficult or what is a really difficult aspect of plotting? For me, it's the timeline. The, the book that I've just been copy, copy editing, Want to Know a Secret, um, has a pregnancy in it. So you've got to be really careful. And I'm not. 
when I'm just getting the first draft out, I think I'll go back and sort that later. And it doesn't, it's somewhere in my mind that it was two days or two weeks or two months, but nowhere have I written it down. And so when it comes to the copy editing, the copy editor says, well, that won't work because this and tells me how I've got to change it. And I really get in knots about that. And I'm just glad I do just work with normal time because if I was a science fiction writer or something and was working with expanding time or something or light years, I just don't think, you know, I'd have, I'd have a nervous breakdown about that. Um, and I do write a timeline for the backstory in a way in that I like to know everybody's ages and when they got married. And so I have like a list of years and I'll have in there, you know, so-and-so was born this year, so-and-so got married this year, this was when so-and-so died. And so I can work out where other people were, were in the backstory. But I just don't seem to be able to do it as I go along. And I'm really going to make a big effort with this new book. <laughs> worth noting Sue just pulled her face yeah. <laughs> okay so do you believe um, what many of us were taught at school uh, a story has to have the beginning a middle and an end I do but I try not to put it quite so boringly because I think we all had it rammed down our throats without it ever really being explained to us what that meant I think it was it was meant to be helpful and possibly wasn't I think the three act play scenario is easier to understand that you need to have the um, the setting up what your characters want and what's stopping them have it. And then you move it on. You make the conflict escalate, which would be the middle, essentially. Yeah. And then you have the central character getting his or her goal, which is the end, essentially. And so, yes, I do believe in those things. But I, I personally think of it a lot of the time as conflict, black moments and the conflict being solved. But, yeah, I do see those three parts very much. And looking specifically at the, at the middle uh, of a book, um, are there any problems that you get there and how would you overcome those? Yeah, it's easy to have a saggy middle, um, which is never a good thing. Um, so I do tend to try and have things ready to hit the story with. And I have had um, quite a lot of reviews where people have said that the action is quite without pause. It's, it's, it goes forward. The forward momentum of the book is good. The pace is good. And that is what I like to read. And so it's what I like to write. So I do try and avoid saggy middles. So to have somebody who's told a lie, for instance, to have them blab something when they're drunk, to have a skeleton rattling out of a, a cupboard, to have a secret discovered... And so I think, yeah, just have something in the middle to throw. And then if you've got something to hurl into the story like that, your ending, you've just got to solve it. And so they are. There's your book. You've written it. Easy. <laughs> and Well, actually, you, you say it's easy, but looking at, at endings, how do you know when you've reached the end? Well, because I write romantic fiction, I've got the hero and heroine together. But this goal has, some goal has been reached other than that. My books are not just boy meets girl and they live happily ever after. But the romance does play a big part in the book, but it's not the only part of the book. So there is always something else to be solved, some other difficulties to be solved. I think I do have a little bit of a reluctance to leave my characters alone because I do quite often write an epilogue. Um, you know, you've had that and then I just have to have another little look at it, just a little look back and just check they're OK and have some kind of scene just to reassure the reader Thanks to Sue Moorcroft. Now, over the next week or so, I'm going to spend some time making uh, the whole interview that we've done over the past three months uh, into a, a special podcast which uh, and, and a programme which we're going to air here on Siren FM first, and then, of course, we'll make it available on our podcast. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM.
Hi, it's me again. Thank you very much for downloading the podcast of The Reading Room, which uh, comes to you on the first Sunday of every month, live from the Siren FM studios in Lincoln, 107.3, from 10am. So please join us on the 5th of December, where we already have an interview and reading recorded with local author Georgia Twynham, and I'm really enjoying her 13th series of books at the moment. And I'll have persuaded two of our reviewers to come along to the studio and review Night of Rain and Stars by Maeve Binchy. See you then. Bye. Bye.